Good morning, everyone. My name is, I'm Juan. Um, I'm, one of, I'm one of the small group coaches here for Front. I also lead the Park Slip small group. Today, I'll be closing out our series on the parables by talking about Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. It's a parable that you might know as the parable of the 10 virgins or the parable of the 10 bridesmaids. I'm going to attempt a more dramatic reading of this parable to try to create for us how Jesus' audiences would have encountered these parables. Here we go. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 bridesmaids with their lamps waiting for the groom to arrive. Five of the bridesmaids were foolish, five were wise. When the foolish brought their lamps to the wedding, they brought no extra oil with them, but the wise did. The groom was super late for some reason. He was so late that all 10 of them fell asleep waiting for him. But at midnight, there was a shout. The groom's here. Come out to meet him. So all the bridesmaids quickly got up and scrambled to their feet to trim their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, yeah, oops. Um, So it looks like we're running low on oil, and our lamps are going to go out. Do you think you could share with us a little bit of that extra oil you brought with you? But the wise replied, nope. No can do. There's just, there's just not enough to go around for all of us. But you know what? I think there's a shop out somewhere out there that's still open. And maybe if you hurry, you can go out and get, buy some more for yourselves. And while the foolish went out to buy out more oil, the groom came. And those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. When the other bridesmaids finally made it to the wedding feast, they said, Lord, Lord, we're here, we made it. Open the door, let us in. But he replied through the closed door, I really don't know who you are. You sure you were invited? Because I'm not letting you in into this party. Keep awake, therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. How many of you know this parable? I'll bet that, like me, you've been taught that this parable is about being ready for Jesus' return, that you always have to have enough oil, whatever that means, so that when Jesus comes, <laughs> yeah, so that Jesus, when Jesus comes, you won't be shut out of the kingdom of heaven like the foolish girls. Anyone else feel deeply unsatisfied with that interpretation? (laughs) For me, it's almost a little too straightforward of a message given that this is a parable. And also, there's just so many things happening in the story that don't make any sense. I've always been confused and therefore intrigued by this parable. So I chose to talk about it today so we could try to figure it out together. I read the parable the way I did just now because I wanted to remind us of the fact that the parables are part of an oral storytelling tradition. They're meant to be heard. And often today, we're just reading them on paper or on a screen. They've already been written down. They've been translated into English or whatever language that we read in. And often, we're reading them through our own specific cultural and historical lens. And that's why parables like this one are so frustrating. It's only until we imagine and reconstruct how Jesus' listeners might have heard and received the parable that we can start to uncover what the story might mean. 
So who is the intended audience for this parable? The fact that this parable appears only in the book of Matthew and is not repeated again in Mark and in Luke, like the other well-known parables are, suggests that this parable is geared towards Matthew's specific audience. Matthew's writing a few years after the first Jewish-Roman war that took place in the year 66 to 73 of the Common Era. And during this war, the Romans completely destroyed Jerusalem. So Matthew's writing to a community that has just watched its home base, its beloved city, and its most symbolic building, the Temple of Jerusalem, burned to the ground by the Romans. Matthew's writing during a period of collective pain. He's writing to a community that's dealing with anger and grief and fear and exhaustion. And we New Yorkers may be able to relate a little bit if we remember 9-11, when we ourselves saw our iconic and symbolic buildings destroyed and collapsed to the ground. When we as a nation felt a collective confusion, felt collective mourning and fear and a resulting surge of national identity that still reverberates today, right? It's been almost 20 years since 9-11 and we're still feeling the emotional and cultural impact of it. So imagine how the Jewish community at this time feels about their city and their temple being completely destroyed. Imagine how angry and fed up they are living under the Roman Empire. They want justice. They want agency and autonomy as a nation. And they want a strong leader, somebody who will help them establish a new nation of Israel, a new Jerusalem that is free from the rule of the Roman Empire. Also, Matthew is most likely writing in the decade of the 80s in the common era, not the 1980s, for a Greek-speaking community living in what is now known as Palestine and Syria. Keep in mind, Jesus died and resurrected in the year 33. So there's a generation of people in Matthew's audience who would have seen or heard about Jesus while Jesus was still alive and who are expecting Jesus to come back um, sometime during their lifetime. These followers of, Jew uh, of Jesus were, would have considered themselves Jewish and not yet Christians. But because this community believed Jesus was the Messiah, they had major fundamental differences with the larger Jewish community who believed the Messiah had still not come. Excuse me. So what Matthew tries to do continually throughout the book of Matthew is establish Jesus as the Messiah and make Jesus the ultimate interpreter and fulfillment of Jewish law. He's trying to distinguish between the old guard of the Jewish tradition, the religious authorities of the day who enforce the religious laws who Matthew identifies as the Pharisees. So he's trying to distinguish between this old guard and this new guard, this new Jewish community that follows Christ and is now also beginning to open up their community to Gentiles. So now that we have this background, let's turn back to the parable. This parable compares the kingdom of heaven to 10 young girls who are part of a wedding ceremony. The Greek word used for girl is parthenoi. It's often translated into English as virgin because it suggests a woman who's just ripe for marriage because she's probably started to menstruate and can now have children. That would make her what, 12, 13? In other words, she's a tween. So <laughs> Jesus is basically asking his audience right from the start to identify with a bunch of tweens, which is unusual. 
he splits them up into two groups right away. Five tweens are wise, whatever that looks like at 12 years old, and five are foolish. These 10 tweens have been selected to be part of a wedding. Weddings are a big deal now, but they were even more of a big deal back in first, first century Palestine. Back then, weddings started with a huge blowout wedding feast, and then the celebrations would just continue, after, continue for seven days straight. So these girls are part of the torchlight procession that escorts the bride and groom to this huge feast. In this parable, they're waiting for the groom to come and pick up the bride. And in case anyone is curious about the lamps, because I was, uh, they're probably ceremonial torches. There's these long sticks with a bowl of oil attached at the top, and there was a cloth inside that you had to trim to keep the oil burning. I want to emphasize that being part of this ceremony would have been the only religious ritual that a girl could ever perform in public other than her own wedding. It would have been considered a huge, huge honor. And being a bridesmaid was important because it also signaled to the community that a girl was now officially on the marriage market. Um, during a time when the only ambition for a girl was to be a wife and to be a mother of sons, this would have been a huge opportunity for both the girls and for their families. So they would have taken this role really, really seriously. So when the groom finally arrives hours and hours late, the first century audience is probably cringing. To them, the groom's actions are unbelievable and borderline absurd because he's blatantly defying basic standards of hospitality. First of all, for whatever reason, he arrives so much later than he's supposed to that all 10 of the girls have fallen asleep. And remember, there are wedding guests waiting at the banquet hall for him. So chances are they've also fallen asleep. On top of that, neither he nor his family thought to have any extra oil ready for the torch procession in case of you know, extreme delay or an emergency. The girls may have been expected to pack enough oil to last until midnight, but it would have been on the host to have some extra oil available too, just in case, say, the groom showed up really late, right? The audience might have been upset that because of the wedding host's oversight, five young girls are now running out in the pitch dark after midnight to find an oil merchant who's still open. And remember, this is not New York City where things are open 24-7. <laughs> And then the real kicker, and this is the part that makes me so uncomfortable, is that at the end, even though the foolish girls, some proved to be really, really resourceful and somehow managed to find oil at that ungodly hour, when they get to the feast, the groom doesn't even open the door for them. He says through the closed door, I don't know you, even though he definitely knew them because he and his family would have helped to select these bridesmaids for the ceremony. So, can you imagine yourself as a 12-year-old girl and a relative or a family friend invites you and selects you to be part of their wedding ceremony as a flower girl? So you get really excited, you want to wear the cute dress, you, want to you, know, you practice walking down the aisle strategically and adorably throwing flower petals around. And then the groom decides right before the ceremony is about to start, hey, so we're going to place the officiant like yards and yards further back than what we initially intended. And the groom doesn't have any extra flower petals waiting, like, waiting around for you. So halfway down the aisle, you run out of 
rose petals and you're 12. So you're like, okay, I'm gonna merrily keep it going. And you're thinking about the cake, you're thinking about the wedding party and the dancing, right? And after the ceremony, when it's time for the reception, the groom says to you, you stupid girl. You don't get to come to this party because you ran out of rose petals. It's not a perfect analogy, but I'm trying to give you a sense of how ridiculous all of this is. Even by today's standards, the groom's actions would have been rude, but in the tradition of Jewish hospitality at the time, it would have been utterly shameful. There's a really disturbing um, story in Genesis 19 where a group of men in Sodom want to disrespect Lot's two guests who happen to be angels. They want to rape them. It's really disturbing. They gather in front of Lot's house and they demand Lot send the guests outside. Anyone remember what Lot does? He offers to send out his own two daughters instead because he doesn't want to be a bad host. He says, look, I have two daughters who have never known a man. Why don't you let me bring them out to you? Do whatever you like with them, but don't do anything to these men since I am responsible for them. The story is really extreme, but it gives us a sense of how serious the Jewish tradition of hosting and hospitality was at the time. Also, let's not overlook the blatant misogyny in all of this, and that's a whole other sermon in itself. <laughs> and what do we think about the, ten, uh, the interaction among the 10 girls? The wise girls who happen to bring extra oil even though they weren't expected to, they don't spare a drop, they don't share, they don't put themselves in the other girl's shoes, they don't empathize even though all 10 of them fell asleep waiting for the groom. Doesn't their behavior go against the golden rule that Jesus sets forth in Matthew 7:12, when he says, and everything do to others as you would have them do to you for this is the law of the prophets? Jesus famously says, right, one of the greatest commandments is to love your neighbor as yourself. But in this parable, it seems like those who love, don't, don't help their neighbor, don't love their neighbor, they're the ones who get rewarded. So if we are to take this parable at face value, isn't Jesus contradicting himself? So it's obvious that this parable is meant to shake up and challenge its audience, and I think it's doing a great job. Uh, as a parable should, it's asking listeners to probe deep into the foundations of their world, of their reality, and their beliefs, and to reconsider their theological narrative in a new light. As a good, as a good parable does, this parable describes a situation that its audience would find extremely familiar, like 10 girls and a wedding ceremony, and then subvert the familiarity by introducing a twist. For the first century audience and for us, this uncomfortable twist is that however we feel about it, the foolish girls get shut out of the party, even though they did everything that was expected of them as bridesmaids. Per social custom, they brought their lamps, they brought enough oil to perform their ceremonial duties. Had the groom actually followed conventional wedding and hospitality customs, and had the groom arrived at a reasonable hour. These foolish girls were just simply not ready for the groom in the way that he needed them to be. And when they finally get to the party and say, Lord, Lord, open the door for us, he turns them away like they're strangers. 
So, turns out, straightforward message, many of us were taught about this parable, that it's about being ready and that it's, being, it's about being prepared, is exactly what this parable is about. Except there's another twist, another subversion. Let's look at Matthew 7, 21, 23, where we see Jesus using the same harsh language as the groom. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many deeds of power in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you evildoers. That's really harsh. In this language, it's not spoken by a character in a parable. It's attributed to a direct statement that Jesus made. Here, Jesus is talking about false teachers. He's referring to the religious leaders of the day, like the Pharisees. He's calling out the leaders for focusing on the wrong things. They were teaching that being a good person or a moral person was about following rules and obediently doing all the things you're expected to do. He's angry that these leaders were teaching that the right deeds, especially really amazing ones like casting out demons, that it's those outward actions that were the only measure of a person's worth and the only measure of a person's standing in the kingdom of heaven. The, relig the religious leaders performed so-called deeds of power to set themselves apart as being morally and spiritually wiser and therefore superior to others. And Jesus is really pissed off about this because these beliefs justified the persecution and exclusion of those who didn't follow or couldn't follow the religious laws to the right standards. By the way, standards set by the religious leaders. That's why Jesus calls them evil. I don't know, this sounds really familiar. Anyone hear the American church today? Just saying. Anyway, these false teachers were gatekeeping who was in and who was out of the community only by judging whether a person was behaving exactly the way that they were supposed to, just like the foolish virgins who performed their bridesmaids' duties exactly and only as expected of them by custom. Sure, they did exactly what they were supposed to do, but I think it's precisely because those girls followed social convention that they were considered foolish in the parable. You see, I'm guessing that the wise girls may have known a little something about the groom's personality. <laughs> Maybe they knew he didn't care much for social convention, that he was radically different. Or maybe they just knew he's that friend who always shows up hours later than he's supposed to. We all have a friend or relative like that. And if you don't, maybe you're the one who's always late. <laughs> the point is, this guy operates on his own time and shaming doesn't work on him. And the wise girls know him well enough to know this. And that's why they think, hmm, maybe I should just bring some extra oil because he just might be late to his own wedding. The foolish girls, on the other hand, didn't know the groom well enough and focused only at the task at hand. And what happens? The groom tells them he doesn't know them. So, see what the parable did? See all the little twists? 
It's showing us that the kingdom of heaven is never going to be what we think it is. And for first century listeners who had just experienced a devastating war, the kingdom of heaven was a messiah who could conquer the Roman Empire using military and political power. This messiah would arrive immediately to destroy their enemy and rebuild the nation of Israel as a great military, political, and cultural power. But this parable suggests Jesus is not this messiah that they are expecting, and that his kingdom is not going to follow human notions of power. It's a kingdom where the first is last and the last is first. For us today, maybe this parable tells us not to project our own social conventional norms and expectations onto the kingdom of heaven. That if we are praying for a kingdom of heaven, that's a place of equity, justice, mercy, peace, and love, we cannot expect it to mimic power structures and social conventions that we humans maintain on this earth. The parable asks both the first century listeners and 21st century listeners to expect the unexpected of the kingdom of heaven. It's suggesting that we be ready even though we don't know when or whether Jesus will return. It's challenging us to be prepared for a kingdom of heaven that may look nothing like we think it should. This parable is saying, focus on who Jesus is first, and if we act upon our knowledge and our experience with Jesus, we're more likely to do the, the right and wise thing than when we just do things because the church insists that we should behave like a good Christian. Maybe Jesus is that friend that we love so much who always shows up so late. So when he asks to meet us for dinner at seven, we either leave the house an hour late or we bring a book with us because we know he's not showing up until nine. What I'm trying to say is that it's about us responding to Jesus, to what we know about Jesus and being ready for the kingdom of heaven even when it doesn't look like what we've been told it will look like and when it's not filled with the people who we were taught were supposed to be there. Like the religious leaders Jesus was calling out, if we think that we can judge whether other people are in or out, or whether other people are good or bad, based solely on their performance of social roles and obligations, or based solely on social and cultural expectations created by human systems of power, maybe it's actually us who will find the door closed. And that's really challenging, right? that we might find the door closed on us. That's why this parable is a good one. Even though it seems to end on a picture of doom, all it's really trying to do is to get a thoughtful reaction from us. All it's doing is getting us to think about the kingdom of heaven differently and to revisit our own limited notions of who God is and how God works. And so that we don't end on gloom and doom, if we look at metaphors of closed doors throughout the Bible, we see a picture of hope, of acceptance, of welcome, and of inclusion. Let's look at Revelations 3.8, where the metaphorical Jesus figure says, I know your works. Look, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Isn't that hopeful that even those of us who have but little power 
has a door open to us that nobody can shut. Let's look at Matthew 7, where Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. So let's ask, let's search, and let's knock. Instead of presuming and assuming, we can be certain of the kingdom of heaven. Let's expect the wonderfully unexpected things that we will find in this kingdom of God. And let's always remember that God wants to open the doors to their kingdom of heaven to us and for us if we ourselves are ready to be let into the party. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for who you are and what you have already done and will do. We thank you for opening to us and for us a kingdom of heaven so amazingly and beautifully mysterious and so wonderful than anything we could ever imagine. Help us to carry around this kingdom with us wherever we go and help us to show a tiny glimpse of this kingdom to those around us. Help us as we continue to ask, search, and knock. Help us to be ready for your party. In Christ we pray, amen.